really throughout this month as we're in this Advent season, and we're going to look at the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And as you turn to Matthew's Gospel, you'll notice uh, that Matthew's Gospel does not begin with the birth of Jesus, but Matthew's Gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And it's very tempting for us to read through this list of names, these 17 verses, and kind of even skip over them at times. Now, there's many names on here that we might not be familiar with. It might be hard to pronounce and just kind of move on into verse 18 where Matthew talks about the birth of Jesus. But God has given us this text for a reason. Names are important. In fact, as we go through this list of names, what you'll find is that each of these names represents a story. Each of these names represents a person and how God used them, whether they were faithful to God or not, how God uses them in that lineage that ultimately leads up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so hopefully as we walk through this today, we'll be reminded of God's faithfulness and we'll be reminded of how God has a redemptive plan and how God can use anyone for His glory as we come into this first Sunday of Advent. As you can see, uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper today, which is a, a great way to begin Advent as well. Advent is about uh, looking back at the first coming of Christ and anticipating the second coming of Christ. And that's exactly what we do when we come to the Lord's table together. And so the Lord's table, the invitation is for anyone here who is a, a confessing follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you've made that public profession, uh, then we invite you towards the end of our service to participate in the Lord's table with us. But before we get there, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 at the first 17 verses. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read for us the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how Matthew's gospel begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. 
and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you would pray with me. Father God, I do pray that you would bless our time as we consider this word. Lord, for many of us, this is simply a list of unfamiliar names. But Lord, I pray as we look deeper into it, that we would see your glory and your majesty and your faithfulness. And Lord, that we would respond to that faithfulness with repentance and faith on our behalf. And we pray for this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. You may be seated. Where I realize for, for many of us, uh, genealogies may not be the most exciting things in the Scripture. Now, for many of us, genealogies aren't that exciting at all. But for others, perhaps you've spent some time uh, studying your family tree. Uh, it's become more and more popular. There's more and more tools available now. You can do DNA tests. You can get online and find all kinds of resources. And so uh, there's all these opportunities to find out where you came from, who your people are. I've shared before that I've been uh, investigating, trying to dig into my family tree for a number of years now. I've, uh, if, you've, if you've gone through this, uh, you know that uh, once you get up several generations, it gets rather complex because you've got all these branches of the tree uh, that you can kind of climb up. And so as I've done my family tree, the one that I've gotten the furthest up on is on my father's mother's side, my grandmother's side. I've gotten all the way back to Germany on that one, around the 1400s. I've actually been able to look at a copy online of the ship's manifest uh, when that family came from Germany to the United States and follow that line down to when they settled in Lexington, North Carolina. In fact, my great, 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 great grandfather was named Valentine Leonard. Uh, Sandy's glad that we didn't know these names before we named our kids because uh, there's some interesting ones. In fact, after Valentine, I actually had a relative named Valentine Easter. Um, but Valentine Leonard uh, settled there in North Carolina, and he's one that I found out quite a bit about because family had done research on him. And something that's interesting about him, I've shared this with some of you before, uh, is that he was a farmer. Most of the people in my family have been farmers. And life was going well for him there in Lexington, North Carolina in the early 1800s until uh, he made a bad decision. Uh, he had a relative who was very bad at paying their debts and he signed a note for that relative. He basically said, if this relative doesn't pay his debt, I'll pay it for him. Well, this relative managed to acquire so much debt and couldn't pay it that they came uh, to my great, 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 great grandfather, uh, Valentine Leonard, and they, they took everything he owned. In order to pay off this debt, he had to give up all his earthly possessions. In fact, as the story goes, all he had left was his wife, his six children, a few belongings they could fit onto a cart, and a blind horse. And so they loaded up this cart, they took the blind horse, and they went north to Carroll County, Virginia. And that's where they settled. A few generations later, in fact, his great-great-granddaughter was born. Her name was Annie Dean. And as she grew up, she met a young man named Richard Carwile. 
and they got married, and that's my grandparents on my father's side. I share all that because I find family trees rather fascinating when you consider all the events that led up to where we are today. You know, for me, if my great-great-great-great-grandfather hadn't signed a note for a relative in the early 1800s, I wouldn't be here today. If he hadn't made that bad decision, but God used that bad decision to ultimately bring him up to Virginia, where a descendant would later meet someone else, and from that union would come much of my family tree. If that hadn't happened, the whole thing wouldn't have worked out. And if you've studied your family tree, you know this is one of hundreds of things that had to work out for you to be here today. I mean, think of everything that had to happen over the last few hundred years for you to be sitting here today in Bloomfield, Kentucky on December 2nd, 2018. Now, the world looks at that and the world says, well, you're here today because of chance. Now, you're here today because of luck or a lack thereof. But what we find in the Scripture is all those things that have led up to this moment, All those decisions that go up your family tree that generations before you made. All the things that happened in the lives of people who you never met and you may not even know their names. God was sovereignly at work to get you and I to this point today. And we see that nowhere clearer than in Matthew chapter 1 in these first 17 verses. Where Matthew unfolds for us this family tree of Jesus. Now, this isn't the only genealogy of Jesus. Luke's gospel also has one. In Luke's gospel, Luke is trying to make clear how Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. Here in Matthew's gospel, he takes a different route. Again, when you come to that family tree, you can go all kinds of directions. What's clear in Matthew's gospel is he wants the people to understand, his readers to understand, that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. That Jesus is the descendant of King David. And so in doing that, he he unpacks for us these various generations, some who were very faithful to God, some who were not faithful at all, and shows how they all led up to the birth of Jesus Christ. It would take us weeks, months, many Sundays of sermons to go through every name in this genealogy and every story that's here. For the sake of our time today, I just want to highlight a few. And I think through these, we see the hand of God at work. And so I want to point out three things that we learn from this genealogy, beginning with the first point there in your outline. We learn about the faithfulness of God. And we see God's hand faithfully at work when we consider all the names listed in this genealogy. For example, there at the beginning, verse 2, we see, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, if you know Abraham's story, you know in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to follow him. He calls him to leave his land and to go to another land, and he says he's going to bless him there. And then a few chapters later, God tells Abraham that he and his wife Sarah are going to have a child and that the nations are going to be blessed through this child, that many are going to come, nations are going to be born from Abraham and Sarah's line. But if you know the story, you know there was a problem with that. And the problem was Abraham was old. And his wife Sarah was old. And they didn't have any kids yet. And so I can only imagine what is going through Abraham's mind 
as he's hearing God tell him at this old age he's going to have a child. I can identify with being old. I'm turning 45 next week. I'm getting up there, Gary. 45. And I'm not here to announce to you today that I'm having another child. Uh, in fact, yeah, you saw uh, the pastor's wife raise her head to that one. Uh, there was a joke a few years ago, Sandy was sick, and someone asked me if she was pregnant, and I said, well, if you see me uh, coming in with bruised eyes and her laid out on the altar, that would be the case. Uh, we are blessed, and our quiver is full, and God has blessed us with a family. And when I consider Abraham and consider Sarah, that they, at the age of 40 and 50 and 60, that they had not experienced that blessing. That they had resigned themselves to what seemed to be the reality that they would never have children. And then decades went on beyond that, and God says to Abraham, you're going to have a child. Now, if you know the story, you know that Abraham tries to make this work in other ways. He's not sure how God's going to work this out. In fact, one, at one occasion, he's interacting with God and he's saying, well, well, maybe God, you're going to raise up a descendant from my servants. He, he talks to him about a custom in that day where if you didn't have a male descendant, you could pick a male from among your servants, your workers. One of them could receive the inheritance. But that's not the way God was going to bless him. And then he and Sarah come up with this whole other plan for Abraham to have a child with one of her servants, and that'll be the line. And God says, no, that's not how he's going to bless him. No, God does what he said he would do. And in Genesis 21, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, God blesses them with Isaac. When the people of God would see Matthew's letter and would come to verse 2 and would read, Abraham was the father of Isaac. They would be reminded of the faithfulness of God. They would be reminded of how God works in miraculous ways. And that's just in the first name and the genealogy. You continue on, you get to verse 5 where we read, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, if you know this story, you know that we start out the book of Ruth with Naomi, who was Ruth's mother-in-law. Uh, Naomi and her husband and their two sons had left Bethlehem and had gone to a faraway country of Moab. Uh, there was a famine in their land, and so they went to Moab. Moab was a wicked place filled with wicked people. They worshipped false gods. In fact, it was there uh, that, that Naomi's two sons would marry Moabites. They would marry Moab women. And we don't know all the details, but we know that things did not go well for Naomi's family in Moab. In fact, in the opening verses there, the book of Ruth, we find that Naomi's husband has died, and that her two sons have died, and that she's ready just to go home to Bethlehem. She is bitter towards God, and she just wants to go back and die. In fact, she tells her daughters-in-law, you just stay in Moab, you go get married to someone else, you still have a chance in life, but I'm too old. My life is over. God has taken everything of value from me. And so the opening verses there don't have a, a very optimistic picture for Naomi. 
And yet we see the hand of God at work. Uh, Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law who says, no, she won't go back to Moab. But whoever Ruth or Naomi's people are, that's who Ruth's people would be. She, she turns to Naomi and says, whoever your God is, that's who my God will be. And she journeys back to Bethlehem with her. And there as we see God's plan unfold, she meets Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He marries Ruth. And we go from Ruth chapter 1 where Naomi is just bitter towards God, to Ruth chapter 4, where Naomi is holding in her lap a grandchild named Obed, where the people, specifically the ladies of the community, have surrounded her and are just heaping praises on her. We go from her being bitter towards God to her being blessed by God. As the people of God came to this point in the genealogy, surely again they would be reminded that their God, our God, is a faithful God. And so as we walk through this passage, something that becomes very clear through these two stories is that Matthew is showing that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was told that his offspring would bless the nations. We've seen in our study of Galatians, Jesus is the offspring that blesses the nations. Ultimately, all the nations are blessed through Christ. That's the offspring of Abraham. He's showing us very clearly that Jesus is the son of King David. He's a descendant of King David. That he will be a greater king than David. He will be an eternal king and his kingdom will never fail. And as Matthew's telling the story of these lines, he's making it clear to the people. Our God is a faithful God. And friends, that is good news for us this morning. Because just as much as this genealogy reminds us that our God is a faithful God, it reminds us that we are faithless people. And that brings us to the next point there in your outline. We learn not only about God's faithfulness, we learn about the faithlessness of man. The faithlessness of man. We look to verse 6 there. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. <laughs> Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba here. And if you know the story, you probably know why. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, God anoints David king over Israel. At that point, we see David as this godly young man, a man after God's own heart. But we find it very quickly as David grows older that that, that David is not perfect by any means. In fact, uh, David does some rather wicked things. And so by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David's failure as king. The scripture says it's during a time when kings would go out to war. So the king would go out to to lead his men, his troops in battle. But in this situation, David didn't go. David stayed home. And as we read the story, we find that David sees Bathsheba, that he's attracted to Bathsheba. Now, she's not his wife. She's the wife of someone else, the wife of Uriah. But he takes her and they have an adulterous relationship. And then she comes and sends word to him that she's become pregnant. And so David, here, his sin is going to be found out. His sin is going to be known. So an attempt to cover his sin, he comes up with this whole scheme where he'll bring Uriah back from the battlefield and then people will think that this is Uriah and Bathsheba's child. But but Uriah doesn't do what David thinks he'll do. And so ultimately, David's next choice is, well, I guess I'm just going to have to take Uriah out of the picture. And so he puts Uriah on the front lines. He sends instructions and Uriah and others are killed in order to cover David's sin. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. At this point, the kingdom does not know of his sin, but God knows of his sin. 
And God sends Nathan to David. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, Nathan confronts David on his sin. And David comes to a point of brokenness and David repents. But there's a consequence of his sin. And one of those consequences is the child that he and Bathsheba have together, that first child, dies. And we also see from that point on a great rebellion and great division in his kingdom. Ultimately, his children rise up not with him, they rise up against him. And so it's interesting that in the midst of this genealogy leading up to Jesus Christ, (laughs) that God would include stories that remind us of man's sin and man's wickedness. And it's not just David. We see it with his son Solomon. David and Bathsheba have other children. Solomon is one of them. Solomon becomes king. We see God blesses Solomon. God gives Solomon wisdom. But God warns Solomon. He warns him against bad decisions. And one of the bad decisions he warns Solomon about is don't marry a bunch of women from other nations and don't dilute the people of God with these pagan gods and these foreign gods. But that's exactly what Solomon does. Like one of the things Solomon is known for is wisdom and all the marriages he had, which don't go hand to hand in his life at all. In fact, we see Solomon make bad decision after bad decision. Then his son, Rehoboam, who Matthew mentions him, he carries on in his father's tradition. He makes ungodly and unwise decisions. That carries on there in verse 7 to Abijah. And we actually read about Abijah in 1 Kings 15, verse 3, where it says, And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. You think about that for a second. Sometimes you'll see a child and you'll say, Oh, they're, they're just like their mother. They're just like their father. Most of the time we say that in a positive way. But the scripture here says of Rehoboam and Abijah and others going down to Manasseh, they were just like their dad in that they did sinful, wicked things things against the Lord so that by the time we get to verse 10 in Manasseh we read that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and so how do we reconcile these things on one hand we see God's faithful hand at work in Jesus's genealogy and at the same time we see man's wickedness and faithlessness why is God giving us this picture in order to prepare us for the birth of Jesus Well, I think there's many reasons. I'll point out just a few this morning. One, I think God wants to make it clear that He is faithful even when we are not. And friends, that is the exact opposite message of what so many in the world, and even in the church, will tell you today. That there is a false teaching, a false gospel that is prevalent in so many churches It's prevalent so many times when you turn on a a religious station on TV or listen to one on the radio. It's prevalent when you pick up books in a Christian bookstore. And the teaching is this. God's faithfulness is based on your faithfulness. The more faithful you are, the more faithful God will be. If you're lacking in your life, if you don't have health, if you don't have wealth, if you don't see the hand of God at work, this false teaching says, well, if you just have more faith, if you're more faithful, then God will be more faithful. Friends, hear me on this. That is a false gospel. That that is not what we see in these opening verses of Matthew. What do we see? We see faithlessness after faithlessness. We see wickedness after wickedness. We see sin after sin. And yet these things do not thwart the sovereign hand of God. And that 
should make us very thankful. Because, friends, we are some messed up people. (laughs) Time would not permit us this morning, nor do I think anybody would volunteer to come up here and confess all the sin that you've ever done. (laughs) All the wickedness you've ever thought. And there is an enemy that very much wants us to think, well, look at what you've done. Look at what you've thought. Surely a Christian wouldn't think that way. Surely God will never use somebody who was involved in that. And yet, what does the Scripture show us? That even in the midst of wickedness and even in the midst of sin, God's hand is still at work. And God preserves this line going down to Jesus, even through the wicked, evil decisions of faithless men. We see that God is faithful even when we are not. We see that man's faithlessness does not thwart the sovereign plan of God. And we see that God takes sin very seriously. It is tempting for us to look at people like David and say, well, well, look how God used David, so surely God could use me. And that's true, but we kind of twist it sometimes, and we say it more in the context of, well, David was a sinner, and God used him, so I can be a sinner, and God can use me. Well, we totally ignore the part where David's confronted in his sin, We ignore the part where David's repented for his sin, and we ignore the part where there's consequence for David's sin. There's always consequence for sin. Friends, God takes sin very seriously. We should as well. I remind you that as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, a child dies, a kingdom rebels, and ultimately is divided. Does God still use David? Can God still use us? Absolutely but he always calls us to repentance. And that's what we see here in Jesus' genealogy. We see the faithful hand of God. We see man struggling to have faith. And then we see point three here in your outline. where We see God's redemptive plan. We see how God's plan isn't thwarted by the sinfulness of man. Rather, we see how God redeems. And God takes that which seems dead to the world, and makes it alive once again. Notice, for example, verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. I mentioned Boaz already. We know that Boaz was the one who was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He's one that's used in the line of King David. But notice his family tree. You might not be familiar with all the names here. For example, Rahab. We're introduced to Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, There we see that Joshua is sending spies into Jericho to spy out the land. And we learn two things about Rahab. One, we learn that she's the one that houses the spies. She keeps them in secret in her home so that they're protected. And in exchange, they promise to keep her and her family safe. So we learn that about Rahab. The second thing we learn about her is she's a prostitute. And so we here we see someone who's involved in wickedness and evil and sin, and yet at the same time that they're being used by God. And it doesn't end there because then we see as God wipes out all these people in Jericho, he does what he said he would do. He, he protects Rahab and her family. But we read very specifically in Joshua chapter 6 that as Rahab and her family follow the people of God, they're always outside the camp. Now if you remember our study in Exodus, you remember that that was a sign of uncleanliness. Only that which was clean could be in the camp of Israel. That which was unclean was outside of the camp. 
And so they aren't a part of the people of God at this point. God's protected them. God's kept them safe. But they're still kept on the outside because they're not clean. But something changes along the way. When we get to Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, we find that Rahab and her family now are a part of Israel. They're a part of the people of God. They've been redeemed. And we know from this that Rahab has left behind that sinful lifestyle. Something has changed in her heart and in the heart of her family. And now they've been brought into the people of God. Why? Because that's the business that God is in. Of redeeming that which was lost. We see it in verse 10 where we read Amos, the father of Josiah. If you know much about Amos, you know Amos was a very ungodly king. He did great wickedness against God and against God's people. And then he has Josiah. Josiah is very young when he becomes king. And one of the principal things that happens in his life is at this point in the life of the people of Israel, the word of God had been lost and it's recovered. They literally find the books of the word there in rubble. And as they take them out and Josiah has them read, he gathers together all the people of God, all these people who've rebelled and sinned against God. And as he reads the word of God or has this read to them, we read that the nation repents. Now just picture this for a second. I mean, on a very small scale, imagine what it would be like for all of Nelson County to gather together outside as God's Word was read over a loudspeaker and for all of us as a county at one point to say, we are going to repent of our sin and we are going to turn back to God. And the Word tells us an entire nation did this. And it tells us that God redeemed the people. Over and over again throughout the genealogy, leading up to the clearest and the greatest picture of redemption, that which comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Matthew unpacks all of this to get us to this point of seeing God redeems people and Jesus is the great redeemer. Now that's what the prophet Isaiah said Jesus would be. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, there is great hope in that prophecy because it reminds us that that every one of us no matter how you might look on the outside this morning every one of us has a sin issue and god says that not only have we all sinned he says the wages of this sin is death we deserve eternal separation from god we deserve the wrath of god because of our sin but god lays our sin on jesus on the cross that's what isaiah is saying so that we might be delivered from this domain of darkness to this kingdom of light. There's a reason that during the Advent season we light candles. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And what does the light do? The light exposes darkness. The light exposes sin. And the light gives life. That the sun, the light, it grows things. The light represents that we are exposed in our sin and at the same time, we're given the opportunity to repent of our sin and find new life in Jesus Christ. That's what this Advent season 
should remind us of. And that's what this genealogy should remind us of, that God is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Naomi and Ruth. He was faithful to countless generations. And friends, God is faithful in your life and in my life as well. You might feel like Abraham sometimes. Like there's this promise kind of lingering out there, but every year that goes by, you're thinking that this isn't going to happen. And God has forgotten. Friends, the reminder to us from this genealogy is don't lose hope. And don't give up. God has not forgotten you. You may feel like Naomi. You may feel like Naomi and Ruth won. You may be bitter at God. You may feel like God has taken everything of value away from you. And the reminder to us from this genealogy is don't lose hope. And don't give up. God has not forgotten you. And God has not abandoned you. God indeed is faithful. We're reminded as well that we all struggle with faith. We wrestle with sin. David sinned. Solomon sinned. The scripture says all of us have sinned. But we're reminded that Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. And He calls us to repentance and to faith. And so a question that then comes to us from this text is this. What will you and I do with our sin? The question is not, are we sinners? We all are. The question is, what will we do with that sin? And for many of us, we have this notion that somehow our good can outweigh our bad or we'll stand before a holy God one day and try to plead our case. But the Scripture says very clearly, there's none good, none righteous, not even one. Now, none of us are perfect. But there is one who is. And His name is Jesus Christ. And the reason that Jesus was born in that manger was so he would grow to be a man so that ultimately he would go to that cross and he would defeat sin and death on that cross that you and I today might have life. And we are in a season where it's very common for people to ask, are you ready for Christmas? And oftentimes when they ask that question, they're asking, have you bought all the presents? Have you gotten up all the decorations? Are you ready for this event? But friends, I want to challenge you with a different question today. Not are you ready for Christmas, but are you ready for Christ? Are you ready to stand before Jesus? Not only do you understand the first coming of Christ, but are you ready for the second coming? Let me ask it this way. If you knew that Jesus was returning today, would you live your life different? What would you do? And I'll remind you, friends, that we don't know the day or hour, and we are called to be ready every day. And the good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff to get ready. And you don't have to go out there and earn a bunch of merit badges. You don't have to go out there and write a bunch of checks or make up for a bunch of wrong. Here's what the Scripture says you need to do. You need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and turn from it. And you need to trust in Christ not only in his first coming but looking for and longing towards his second coming advent is a time for us to place our hope and our trust in him it's a reminder to us at a time when many had lost hope Jesus was born 
It's a reminder to us that at a time when many felt God had abandoned them, that Jesus was born in a manger. It is a time to remember that God has not forgotten us. God has not abandoned us. And by looking back on what God has done, we can look forward to what God will do. And the scripture says this with clarity and purpose. One day, God will make all things new. And we're called to put our trust and our hope in Him. It's what we do during this season of Advent. It's what we do each day we come to the Lord's table. And so I can think of no better way to begin this Advent season than by coming to the Lord's table together. Because when we come to the Lord's table, we look back. We remember what Jesus did. That on that cross, He died in our place. But we don't just look back, we look ahead. And we remember what Jesus will one day do. Jesus says that He will come like a thief in the night. He says He will come without a moment's notice. And He calls us to be ready for His return. And every time we come to this table, we are preparing ourselves for that very thing. And so once again, we invite all who are professing followers of Jesus to come to this table with us. And so I want to invite our deacons, if you would, to come forward as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. As they come forward, just a word of instruction Uh, I'm going to talk about each element. We're going to start with the bread and the deacons are going to distribute that bread to you. If you'll hold on to that and then I'm going to read the scripture and pray for us and then we're going to receive that together. And as we do that, we'll be walking through 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning with the bread and that reminder that Jesus gives us at that last meal that he had with the disciples. If you were with us during our study of Exodus, you know that they had unleavened bread at that table. We use unleavened bread today in the Lord's Supper, and we do that for purpose. See, when God rescued His people out of Egypt, He told them that they would remember that rescue through the Passover meal. And they would use unleavened bread for that Passover meal as a reminder that when God delivered His people, there wasn't time for the bread to rise. When God delivered His people... It was swift and it was immediate. And there was no time. You may feel like God is slow. But you need to realize, friends, God's timetable is not your timetable. And when God chooses to act, God acts so swiftly, there is not time for the bread to rise. We are reminded of that every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Every time we take this bread. The Scripture says as we prepare to take this, that we're to do this not passively, but we're to do this confessionately. We're to do this with repentance. And so we invite you today, before you take this bread, to consider, Lord, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Am I living according to, how your, God, to your Word, how it calls me to live? Am I trusting in you, or am I trusting in myself? And before you take that bread, friend, to repent and to place your trust, not in part, but in whole, in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. The deacons will distribute the bread and then we'll wait to receive that together. Father God, we do thank you for this first Lord's Day of Advent. We thank you for this reminder of the gospel. We thank you that light has come to the world. We thank you that Jesus has come and has died for our sin. We thank you that this bread is a reminder to us of that and a reminder to us, Lord, that when you choose to act, you act swiftly. We do not know if we will have another hour or if we'll have another day, or if we'll have hundreds of days. And so, Lord, I pray we would live this day for your glory and that our hope and our trust would be in you. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 of this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you for this bread. And we thank you for this opportunity we have and the, the busyness that this season has become for so many of us to consider what this season is truly to be about that Christ indeed has come, that he is the light of the world, that he has died for our sins, and that we can place our hope and our faith in him. Continue to remind us of these things we ask as we receive this bread now in Jesus' name. Amen.
We also read there in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus took a cup. And after the bread, they took the cup and Jesus reminded them that this cup too would be given in remembrance. That it would remind God's people of Christ's blood that was shed for their sin. They would remind them that we're not righteous because of our acts. We're righteous because of Jesus. And so friends, as you prepare to take this cup, I want you to remember that this cup is not for perfect people. It's for those who put their faith in a perfect Christ. And so let me pray for us. The deacons will distribute these cups if you'll hold on to it. And then we'll read the scripture and receive it together in just a moment. Father, we thank you for this cup. For this reminder that it is only through the shedding of blood that forgiveness of sin is possible. We thank you, Lord, that generations sacrificed animals thinking that that would make atonement. But all that pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us now as we prepare to receive this cup. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen.
Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11 to write this. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for the reminder that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That one day we won't be in a new heaven and a new earth covered in merit badges, but we'll be covered in robes that have been stained clean by the blood of our Lord Jesus. So help us, Lord, again to trust in him as we receive this cup. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember the first coming of Christ. We do pray that we would live in light of the second coming. Lord, help us all during this Christmas season to remind people why it is we celebrate Christmas. Place our hope and our faith in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 